Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, uh, Shabbat Shalom. I want, to ask, I want us to look today at this week's Torah portion, uh, and, and in particular Deuteronomy 15, and the issues of biblical justice, mercy, generosity, and helping our neighbor in need. So turn with me, if you can, to uh, Deuteronomy. We're actually going to start first in Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 to 8, and then immediately jump to Deuteronomy 15, this week's Torah portion. So beginning in Deuteronomy 4, verse 5, uh, the Lord says, uh, um, Moses says, See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to all the nations, to the Goyim, who will hear about all these decrees, and they'll say, Surely this great nation of Israel is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? So what are some of these laws I'm setting before you today? Let's jump to this week's Torah portion, Deuteronomy 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they've made to another Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people. Why? Because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner but you must cancel any debt one of your own people owes you. However, there need to be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and be careful to follow his commands that I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he's promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone's poor among your people in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the Shemitah, the year for canceling debts is near. So you don't show ill will toward the needy among your people and give them nothing. They may appeal to the Lord against you, and you'll be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There'll always be be poor people in the land, Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards those of your people who are poor and needy in your land. We're going to see in this passage today how the gospel of grace creates a passion within us for justice and generosity and mercy and helping the poor. And we see here, I'm going to put on the overhead, four things. Number one, we see a threefold call to do justice. Number two, we see the dynamic for doing justice. Number three, the testimony that our justice brings to the world. And then finally, number four, how to produce a heart of justice. 
So first, let's talk about this threefold call to justice that we see in this week's passage in Devarim, Deuteronomy 15. In order to stand Deuteronomy 15, uh, we need to first look at the uh, background here, which is the economic context. Deuteronomy 15 assumes that anyone asking for a loan is understood to be poor. Uh, the Torah says if they're poor, you must lend to them. In other words, if they need a loan, it's because they're poor. So look at Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If anyone's poor among your people, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Now, today, of course, we live in a very different kind of economy, where everybody today gets loans. Uh, home loans, car loans, small business loans, uh, credit card debt. So needing a loan today does not necessarily mean that you're poor. But back then, in that agrarian society, it did. In a pre-industrial, agrarian society like ancient Israel, people didn't get uh, general-purpose loans for everyday living like they do today. There was no such thing as a business loan, or very, very few. Uh, There's no such thing as a home mortgage loan. Almost everyone in ancient Israel was a farmer, and farmers only needed loans when their crop was bad, and they didn't have any money to buy seed for, for next year's crop. The average farmer brought in their crop, sold it, and all they really were hoping for was enough proceeds to A, live at a fairly subsistence level, and B, buy seeds for next year's crop. And there's a number of reasons why a crop might not be good. Uh, there could be famine, uh, there could be drought or bad weather, there could be a military conflict. Uh, there could be death or illness in your family. And typically, if for whatever reason the crop was bad, even for just one year, your family was facing poverty. Because if you didn't have enough money to buy seed for the next year, you could lose your land. Uh, you could starve. And therefore, almost everyone, always, if they, if, they, if they needed a loan, it was because they were falling into poverty. Uh, and that explains why Deuteronomy 15 says every seven years... You were to forgive the debts of a fellow Israelite. But, by the way, you did not have to forgive the debts of a foreigner. Uh, why not? Foreigners weren't landowners in Israel. Foreigners were typically merchants and, and traders, people whom he had traded, uh, passing through and dwelling temporarily in the land. What the Lord's talking about here are fellow Jews in the land who are falling into poverty. They're the ones needing loans. And if you have a bad crop and you get a loan and you have a second bad crop, almost always that means you will be sold into slavery to pay the debt. Now, slavery back then was not race-based. It wasn't what we think of in terms of the American South and our experience with slavery. It was more like indentured servitude. You had to work for your creditor until you paid off your debt. Deuteronomy 15, 12 to 15, we'll look at it in a minute, says, um, discusses how, how many Jewish slaves had to be released every seven years. So that's the background to Deuteronomy 15. If you needed a loan, it's because uh, you're, you're falling into poverty. Uh, and against that background, we're gonna, now we're going to see, first of all, a threefold call that God makes to us, to his people, uh, to believers. God says, if you're my people then I call upon you to be committed to these three things. So the first thing is astonishing generosity to the poor. Look at Deuteronomy 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel all debts. This is known as the Shemitah, the sabbatical year. 
Every seven years, all debts to your, uh, owed by your fellow Israelites were forgiven. And as previously mentioned in verses 12 to 15, it also says all the Hebrew slaves were, were freed. As we discussed, people who had a loan were at one level of poverty. People who were slaves, who were indentured servants, who were at a much deeper debt. And at the end of every seven years, all the slaves were freed and all the debts were forgiven. Now, do you know what that means? Deuteronomy 15, verse 7 to 9, God says, when someone falls into poverty, you must lend them what they need. So look at verse 8, Deuteronomy 15, 8. Be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Now, what if it's only a year or two years before the Shemitah, before the, uh, the, the year of release? And someone falls into poverty and says, I need a loan. And you're saying to yourself, oh my God, I'm only going to get a seventh or maybe two sevenths back of my loan? No way! You know, no loan for you. But God says in verse 9, he says this, Deuteronomy 15, 9, Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near. So you don't show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may appeal to the Lord against you, and you'll be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them. Do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. So the Lord says in this passage, actually four different things here in this little passage. Uh, number one, we'll put this on the overhead. Number one, you must help your brother in need, even if the Shemitah is near and the debt's going to be released. Number two, to not do so is a sin. Number three, you must be generous. And number four, you must do it with a willing heart and not begrudgingly. And by the way, all this was in addition to the tithe. So Israeli society was built on generosity and helping the poor. And every seven years, everybody got a reset, uh, even the slaves, which meant that no one could fall into long-term crushing debt and, and, and generational poverty. Uh, it's an amazing system of biblical justice and covenant community. And by the way, all done on the individual, not the governmental level. So here we see the Lord calling his people to an astonishing level of generosity to the poor. Lend to them willingly. Uh, that's the first part of the call. Then from the overhead, the second thing is God's calling his people to empower the Paul, empower, empower the poor to a place of self-sufficiency. So they won't need a handout. Uh, that's why the debts are canceled. The slaves are set free every seven years. It's to give the poor a fresh start. Not just a handout, uh, but a leg up. Uh, and when you released your slaves, your indentured servants, you had to give them what they needed to start again. So look at verse 12. Turn around me 15, 12. If any of your people, a Hebrew man or woman, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, don't send them away empty-handed, but supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord has blessed you. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That's why I give you this command today. Do you hear this? When they go free, don't send them away empty-handed. But supply them liberally from your flock, your, your sheep and your goats, uh, your, your threshing floor, your, your grain and, and your wheat, uh, your wine press, uh, your, your grape juice, your wine. You need to give your former indentured servants what they needed to get on their feet again. 
That's radical generosity. Enabling them to become self-sufficient, a productive, independent members of society again. Why? Because they're your brothers, they're your sisters in the Lord. That's the second calling of God here to his people. And the third, on the overhead as well, God says, God calls us not just to help them and to empower the poor, but also to give them hope. Hope for the poor. A vision for the poor. Look at verse 4, Deuteronomy 15, 4. There need be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you, to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you, if only you fully obey the Lord your God, and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. God's saying, there need be no poor among you if you'll do everything I'm calling you to do today. But yet, look down in verse 11, and it seems almost contradictory. Verse 15, 11, it says, there will always be poor among you. So be open-handed towards the poor uh, and the needy in the land. Now again, at first blush, this may look like a contradiction, but what's actually happening is there's a realism here. Uh, but at the same time, an amazing hope. On the one hand, the Torah is saying, of course, yes, you're always going to have poor in the land. Of course, people are always going to be, to be becoming poor. Uh, there's oppression, war, famine, drought, calamity, laziness, uh, addiction, self-destructive behavior. You know, we live in a fallen world, a sinful world. So people are always going to uh, be, be becoming poor. But what God's saying here is that there won't be a permanent class of poor people among you if you obey my commands about how you're to treat the poor. Here we see in Deuteronomy 15 a tremendous vision and a hope for the poor. And this is what God calls us to pursue. So here's this threefold call put on the overhead. Uh, Number one, astonishing generosity. Number two, empowerment for them to become self-sufficient. Now to permanent charge on society. And number three, a real hope and a vision for improving the lot of the poor. And note how this biblical model doesn't fit um, any one economic theory or political ideology. It's not socialism. It's not saying that the government take care of it and impose it from above. Uh, But rather God's calling for generous personal involvement of every family in the community. And it's not pure dog-eat-dog capitalism either. Because all the debts are wiped out after every seven years. So the claims of capital are, are um, relativized uh, and not made absolute. Uh, and the needs of the poor are given an amazing priority. There is no economic system like this in the world. Now this is not necessarily speaking to how a secular government uh, must be forced to operate. Because Israel was a theocracy. Uh, and people were in a covenant relationship with God. Uh, so this is the word of God to those who say that they believe in him. So instead of us going down some rabbit hole about possible implications for public policy, instead let's concentrate on how this passage applies to us and to our life. Because we too, like the people of Israel, we claim to be in a covenant relationship with God. So how does this apply to us? Because the character of God doesn't change. These are timeless principles that continue to apply today. And we see it also in the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant. Look at Acts 4, verse 34. In describing the first century Messianic Jewish believers, uh, we read this. There was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned houses or lands sold them, brought the, uh, the money from the sales, and put them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed then to anyone who had need. 
Do you see the radical generosity of the first century Messianic Jewish believers? And as a result, the Bible says there was no needy people among them. And that's a direct quote, by the way, of the British said directly quoting Deuteronomy 15, verse 4. And so we see the New Testament directly applying this Torah principle to the lives of the Messianic believers. Amazing. And it helped to empower those first believers to affect the whole Roman Empire and to change the world. The New Testament is saying to us that the attitude that God commanded Israel to have towards the poor needs to be our attitude as well. Do you see this? Do you see how the principles of the Torah portion directly apply to our life? Jonathan Edwards, this very conservative 18th century preacher from the Great Awakening, he wrote this. We'll put it on the overhead. He says, very conservative guy, by the way, he says, no command in the Bible is laid down in stronger terms than the command to give to the poor. So that's the amazing call of God to us in this passage. That's point number one. Point number two on the overhead is the dynamic for doing justice. Because the scriptures never command us to do something without giving us the resources to do it. Look again Deuteronomy 15.4. There need be no poor among you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. God says, I gave you this promised land. You didn't earn it. I brought you out of Egypt. And because I was generous to you and gave you what you, well, gave you well, what you've got, when you see someone who's poor, you're to give to them. And the Lord makes it explicit down in verse 14. Look at Deuteronomy 15, 14. Supply them, these are the indentured servants you're freeing, supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your winepress. Give to them as the Lord your God has given to you and has blessed you. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. The Lord your God redeemed you. And that's why I give you this command today. God says, remember, you were slaves. You were poor. And I redeemed you. You didn't work your way out of Egypt. And therefore, because my grace to you is free, whenever you see someone who's poor, you should treat them the way that I treated you. Note that God, by the way, God is not saying, because you're doing justice for the poor, I saved you. No, it's not by your works. Just the opposite. He says, because I saved you by my grace, you should be doing justice for the poor. Grace leads you to being just. Same principle in the New Testament, right? Look at James 2.17. Faith by itself, without works, is dead. And James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if you claim to have faith, but no deeds? Can such a faith save you? Suppose a brother's without clothes, without food. If you say to him, go in peace, be warm, be well fed, uh, but do nothing to help his physical needs, what good is that? In verse 26, James 2, is the body without a spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The gospel says, if you're saved freely, not by your merits, but freely, uh, then when someone, then you see someone who's poor, you should be willing uh, to give to them. Look at 2 Corinthians uh, verse 8. Paul here is encouraging the Corinthians to give to the poor. Why? Look at 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Put this on the overhead. In the Torah, in the Torah we're going to contrast on the Torah of the New Covenant. In the Torah, God says, because my grace is free, you should give to the poor. 
But now here in the New Testament, God says, because my grace is costly, you should give sacrificially to the poor. In the Tanakh, the Israelites knew that what they got was, uh, when they got out of Egypt, it was like a get out of jail free card. Uh, they had no idea what it cost God to save a sinful people. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant Scriptures, we do. We know how costly it was for Yeshua to go to the tree, to go to the cross, and save us. We were spiritually poor, and we were saved. How? By the Messiah losing his spiritual riches and becoming spiritually poor, so that by his poverty, we might become rich. And that's a whole new motivation and viewpoint uh, that takes us far, far, far beyond anything the people of Israel had or knew about before the Messiah. Uh, now, I'll not put this in the overhead as well. The experience of God's grace in the gospel leads to justice in two, two important ways. Number one, it changes our attitude towards the poor. And number two, it changes the poor's attitude towards themselves. So number one, grace changes our attitude towards the poor. Look at Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Yeshua says, if you want my blessedness in your life, the first prerequisite is being poor in spirit. Uh, now, what does that mean, to be poor in spirit? Well, if you come to God and you say, you know, I've done some, some, uh, some bad things. Oh, but I've done some good things too. Uh, so answer my prayers uh, and bless me. That's not being poor in spirit. That's saying, I think I've got something good to offer you, God. That's being middle class in spirit. <laughs> think you've got some merit to offer to God. Poor in spirit says, I've done a lot of bad things, but even my good deeds I realize I've done for selfish and self-centered motives. I have no merit to offer you, God. Nothing to justify myself. I am totally dependent on you, Yeshua. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to your cross I cling. I am a spiritual charity case, God. Have you done that? The more that sinks into your own, the more that sinks into you, your own spiritual poverty and bankruptcy, the more you will look at a poor person and see them as your brother and your sister. And you won't look at them with any kind of sense of superiority or, or disdain or indifference. You won't scoff at them. You won't say, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Uh, because you'll know that God did not say to you, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But rather, he saved you by his mercy and his grace. You're never going uh, to look at people in the same way who are poor when you know that you yourself are spiritually bankrupt. It changes your whole perspective and attitude. So number one, the overhead, the, the grace of the gospel will change your attitude towards the poor. And number two, the gospel of grace changes the poor's attitude toward themselves. That's another way the gospel is the greatest resource for justice in the world. An inner city pastor recently said the greatest resource for the healing of the inner city, for the brokenness of the people there, is the doctrine that we're justified by sheer grace alone. There's a theologian, uh, Miroslav Volf. He recently wrote an article called uh, The Shopkeeper's Gold, uh, in which he says this, we'll put this on the overhead. He says, uh, imagine you've got no job, no money, you're cut off from society, 
Uh, you're living in a neighborhood that's ruled by, by poverty and violence. Your skin's the wrong color. You've got no hope for the future. Around you is a larger society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted. Uh, before, before your eyes, in every TV screen and social media, in thousand, a thousand ways, society tells you every day you're worthless. Because you have no achievement. You're a failure. And you continue to be a failure. So there's no way for you to achieve tomorrow, but you haven't already achieved today. Your dignity is shattered. Your soul is enveloped by darkness and despair. But the gospel. The gospel tells you you are not defined by outside sources, outside forces. It tells you that you count, uh, and even more, that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything you've ever achieved or failed to achieve. Imagine now this gospel, not simply proclaimed, but actually embodied in a community. Imagine this, that this community is determined to infuse the wider culture with this message of mercy and love and redemption. That's justification by grace. Proclaimed and practiced. A dead doctrine? Hardly. The gospel is the most powerful resource in the world to bring about justice. The most powerful. Why? Because it changes our attitude towards the poor and it changes the poor's attitude towards themselves. Number three, on the overhead. Justice is a testimony to God. Look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. See, I've, I've taught you decrees and laws, as the Lord my God commanded me, uh, so you may follow them in the land you're entering, to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. Why? For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who hear about all these decrees, and they'll say, what other nation is so great as to have their God near them, the way the Lord their God is near us, is near Israel. We should do justice to the poor because God calls us to do it. And because when we do it, it glorifies God to other people. It testifies to who God is. God, who is he? He's the protector of the poor. He's the husband of the widow. He's the father to the fatherless. In Acts 4, it says that in, uh, that, uh, in the first century, the Messianic Jewish community, in that community there were no needy people among them due to their generosity. Now, right before that passage, we read this, Acts 4.33. And the apostles preached the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua with great power. Why were people converted under the power of the apostles' preaching? Because our fellow Jews not only heard with their ears the message of new life, but they also saw with their eyes in that community the embodiment of that new life. In part because they saw the way in which that community sacrificially gave to people in need. Listen to the overhead. In the same way, if the world today and the Jewish community doesn't see our words about God's gracious generosity backed by our deeds of generosity to the people around us, they're not going to believe our words. If you say you're a Yeshua follower, a, a believer, uh, uh, that, that, um, let me tell you, you are being watched and you are being observed by people all the time. 
and your deeds must match your words. And this is faith without works is dead. Likewise, in evangelism, people won't believe your words if they're not matched by your deeds. If you say you have faith, but you see somebody without resources, and you don't meet their needs, like James says, how is your faith real? So let's ask ourselves, what is our testimony? The bottom line is that God cares greatly for the poor. It's arguably the number one most discussed topic in all the scriptures. So for example, look at Proverbs 14.31. It says, if you insult the poor, you insult the Lord. Proverbs 19.17. If you give to the poor, you give to the Lord. And God just, he doesn't just care about the poor, he actually identifies with them. You know, in Matthew 25, Yeshua tells this great parable, by the way, when in this parable he's alluding back to the Tanakh, he's alluding back to Isaiah 1, Isaiah 58, Job 29, Zechariah 7, all throughout the Tanakh, and, and Yeshua is talking about Judgment Day. He says, on Judgment Day, Lord's going to have all of us stand in front of him. Look at Matthew 25, 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate the people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And, 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 uh, and this is what the, Yeshua the king will say to the goats who are lost. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you didn't visit or look after me. I must say, Lord, what did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he'll reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they'll go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Yeshua says, if you don't love the poor, if you don't love the hungry, if you don't love the one in tattered clothes, uh, the wanderer, the homeless, if you don't love them, then no matter what you say, you don't love me. You don't have a relationship with me. I mean, it's in the overhead. You may have a kind of formal relationship, filled with compliance of ordinances, but you don't really have a personal relationship with me. The way you treat the poor tells me, Yeshua says, the reality of how you regard me. Yeshua says here that a life poured out in deeds of love to the poor is one of the signs of real faith and real connection with God. Yeshua says it's one of the inevitable signs of real faith and a real connection with God. Yeshua says, if you think you know me, if you think you've connected with me, if you think you've humbled yourselves and you're walking with me, and that you don't care about the poor, you haven't. Yeshua says, this is a real index of the condition of your heart. Biblical justice is one of the key tests of real faith. It's a prime indicator of a relationship with God. Now, it may have to grow slowly over time, 
But if it never develops, you don't have the relationship with God that you think you have. Do you understand this is the, at the heart of biblical faith? Because it reveals the nature of your heart. Do you see the importance of biblical justice and how important Yeshua himself thinks it is? Now, why would Yeshua say, if you really have a love relationship with me, you would care for the poor? Why would he say that? Because it's easy to read our portion, Deuteronomy 15, or Isaiah 1, or Isaiah 58, or here in Matthew 25, and it's easy to read all these passages and make the mistake by thinking that God's providing some kind of checklist for our salvation or our blessing. So we can easily read the Bible and think God is saying, okay, uh, worship ordinances, sacrifices, okay, I'm doing that. Uh, personal morality, uh, honesty and ethics, okay. Social justice, helping the poor, uh, you're not doing that one. So you can read these passages and say, okay, I got it. My checklist simply wasn't long enough. If I simply add charity to the poor, then God will answer my prayers. Then he'll hear me, then he'll bless me, then he'll take me to heaven. But if that's what you think these passages are saying, you've missed the whole point. In fact, God is critiquing this kind of religion throughout the whole Tanakh. For example, Isaiah 58, verse 3, people of Israel complaining against God, and they say this, Why have we fasted, God, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you haven't noticed? They're trying to put pressure on God. They're saying, we lived a good life. Now you owe us. Let me put this on the overhead. The self-centeredness of the human heart, which, by the way, is the default mode of the human heart, and and which is a thing that's making this world the mess that it it is, this self-centeredness of the human heart is in no way ameliorated or put to death or cured by religion. So if you say, okay, I get it, I'm going to be religious, I'm going to be doctrinally orthodox, I'm going to be moral, I'm going to worship on Shabbat, and I'm also, by the way, I'm also going to give tzedakah. I'm going to give charity to the poor. Then, God will bless me and take me to heaven. If that's your mindset, you've done nothing to change the fundamental self-centeredness and self-absorption of your heart. In fact, you've actually made it worse. Because now you've hidden your self-centeredness under a veneer of religion. Think about it. If this is your kind of checklist mindset, and if you do good to the poor, uh, and live a moral life, and read your Bible and pray, what you're actually doing, you're not really doing it for God's sake. And you're not even doing it for the poor's sake. You're doing it for you. You're being good out of your own self-centeredness and self-absorption. And that doesn't help a thing. And most of us, by the way, that's the way we try to get people to be good. It's like that, right? We typically try to get our kids to be honest out of a couple forms of self-centeredness. We typically get kids to tell the truth out of two things, out of fear and out of pride. Now, there's a secular form of fear, and they do this to the kids who go to Harvard Business School. You know, in their ethics classes there at Harvard Business School, they say, why, why, they tell you, why should you be honest? They say, well, you need to be honest, you won't go to jail. You need to be honest, otherwise they're going to get you. And you can, there's going to be a scandal, and you'll be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So be good out of fear. And there's a religious version of this, right? Be good, tell the truth, or God will get you. 
And the second form of self-centeredness to motivate people is pride. You say, you don't want to be like all those awful people who tell lies, do you? You're better than that. We say to little Johnny, little Susie, you're better than that. You don't want to be like one of those awful people, do you, who lie? So we appeal to their fear uh, and to their pride, which means we're appealing to and we're encouraging more self-centeredness. And that's how most American parents try to get their children to be honest, try to get their children to care for the poor and to be good. But think about it. Why do people lie? Out of fear and out of pride. So you grow up and you think you're honest and you get into a situation and you embezzle uh, and you get arrested and you say, I don't understand what happened to me. I wasn't raised that way. Yes, you were. Because when you use self-centeredness, when you use pride and fear to get people to be good, you're actually nurturing evil in the very heart of your moral life. And at some point, the jury rigging will collapse and you'll fall into sin. Why? Because you haven't changed the heart. You're only temporarily restraining the heart. You've jury rigged the heart. But they will never produce a people who really live and do biblical justice from the heart. You'll never produce that kind of godly sacrifice, that kind of radical giving, that kind of Yeshua-like servanthood. Okay, number four, five, finally, what will produce it then? What will produce this? Only by seeing the beauty of God in Yeshua. You know, in Isaiah 58, the prophet pleads for his people to do justice and to share their food with the hungry and provide shelter to the homeless and to clothe the naked. And he links all this by, by calling the Shabbat of delight and finding a joy in the Lord. Isaiah says, when you keep the Shabbat, not because you have to, uh, not as a means to an end, but as an end in itself, uh, out of a sense of joy and delight in the Lord, then you'll have a changed heart uh, and right motives. So, for example, I got my undergrad degree uh, many, many years ago <laughs> at Cornell, and I took a music appreciation course. And I listened to lots of Mozart. Why? To get an A in the course, of course. Why do I want an A? So I can get a good GPA. Why do I want a good GPA? To get to law school. Why? To make money. So you could say I listened to Mozart in order to make money. <laughs> but today, I'm happy to spend a lot of money to listen to Mozart. <laughs> why? It doesn't get me anything. So why do I listen to Mozart? Because it's beautiful. It's beautiful in and of itself. It's a fulfilling and satisfying thing in and of itself. It's a delight in itself. It's not a means to an end. It is the end. It is an end. So how can you go to a place where we obey God and love the poor and do good for God's sake, for the poor's sake, and not for our sake? You have to have an experience of beauty. And in particular, to be life-changing, an experience of the beauty of God. When Yeshua says in Matthew 25 and elsewhere, If you love the poor, you love me. If you trample on the poor, you're trampling on me. When Proverbs says, If you lend to the poor, you lend to me. 
When God says in the Proverbs, if you insult the poor, you insult me. What's the Bible saying? It's, it's saying very clearly that God identifies with the poor. God identifies with the poor. He says, you trample on the poor, you trample on me. What does that mean? We think, oh, how wonderful. God empathizes with the poor. He has feelings for the poor. Isn't that sweet? But only Yeshua faith tells how far God went to identify with the poor. When God came to earth in the form of Yeshua the Messiah, he was born in an animal feed trough. When he was circumcised, his parents' offering was two pigeons, the offering prescribed in the Torah for the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor. He was essentially homeless. He says in Matthew 8, 20, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He rode into town on a burrowed donkey. He was buried in a burrowed tomb. He ate his last meal in a burrowed room. The Roman soldiers cast lots for his only property he owned, the clothes on his back. Yeshua was poor. God became poor. But even more so, he also became oppressed. He himself was the victim of injustice. Several commentators, including a Messianic Jewish commentator, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, have written on all the illegalities of Yeshua's trial. Absolutely everything that happened to him was illegal. Uh, his arrest, his, his interrogation, his trial uh, that night, because his trial at night was illegal, having a secret trial, uh, dishonest witnesses who were bribed, uh, lack of defense counsel, hitting him during his trial, no public notice of the trial given, everything, absolutely everything about his arrest, his interrogation, his torture and trial were uh, a gross miscar miscarriage of justice. And Time Magazine, of all places, recently had a fascinating article uh, by an Afro-American woman writer named uh, um, Joanne Terrell. Uh, and, and she writes this, I'll put it on the overhead. She says, In reading the New Testament, I suddenly realized Yeshua didn't just suffer for us, but suffered with us. In essence, Yeshua had been lynched. Yeshua had been lynched by a corrupt justice system. Yeshua knew what it was like to be under the lash. There's a famous British author, John Stott, he writes this, put on the overhead. He writes this, in a world of injustice, I could never believe in a God, in God I could never believe in God without the cross. I could never believe in God if I didn't believe in the cross. Because in a world of injustice, how could I believe in a God who's immune from it? And only Yeshua faith of all the religions in the world says that God was not immune. Only a sure faith says in the last day when the Lord stands before you and if you say, Lord, Lord, when did we see you nailed? Uh, I'm sorry, when did we see you naked? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you a prisoner? Yeshua will be able to say, are you kidding? They cast lots for my garment. I was naked. I cried out, I thirst. I was beaten. I was flogged. I was under the lash. In Yeshua, God literally became one of the oppressed.
He literally was under the yoke. Why? Yeshua says, I who deserved the vindication of justice got condemnation. So that you, who deserve condemnation, could get vindication and pardon. Yeshua plunged himself into our lives. He took all the threads of his glory at an infinite cost to himself, and he threaded himself into our life and saved us from destruction and hell. That's the vision of the beauty that will get you out of yourself. When you see what he did for you, that gets rid of your fear. Well, he died for you, so what have you to fear? And it gets rid of your pride. Why? Because he had to die for you. So you realize you are nothing but a sinner. So on the cross, the fear and the pride go away. And all you see is what he's done. And now you can love him just because he's beautiful. Because of all he's done for you and given to you. And now you just want him and him alone. And you can love now the poor for the poor's sake. And you can love God for God's sake. That's the beauty that will change your heart. Not just to strain or dreary-rig your heart. That's the beauty that will get you out of yourself forever. And will cause you to do justice. And to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team to come up. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your heart for the poor. Lord, you identify with and you defend the poor and the widows and the orphans and the strangers and the homeless and the slaves, those on the margins and without power or resources or worldly wealth. You raise the poor from the dust. You lift the needy from the ash heap. You are a God who loves justice and mercy and loving kindness. You're the God of the never-ending jug of grain and jar of oil. Lord, give us today a heart for the poor. Give us your heart. Change our hearts. Circumcise our hearts. Remove our heart of stone. Give us our flesh. A heart that's soft and broken and tender towards you and your people. Lord, we repent of our callousness and our hard-heartedness and our tight-fistedness toward the poor. Lord, change us, forgive us, pardon us. Help us to be generous, Lord, radically generous. To not grasp our resources as if they're ours, as if we alone have earned them. Because we know that every good and perfect gift, Lord, comes from you. And that without you, we have nothing. We're in the same way that you are merciful and compassionate and gracious to us. Help us to be merciful and compassionate and gracious to the poor and the needy. Not to turn away from our own flesh and blood, whether physically or spiritually. And every poor and hungry and naked and homeless and imprisoned person, Lord, let us see you, Yeshua. For as we're helping and loving towards the least of these, my brothers and sisters, we are helping and loving towards you, Yeshua. Help us to see, Lord, how you 
sacrificed all for us so that we can lay down our lives for one another and for the poor. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Thank you.